how's your day? Oh, uh, it's been a day. I. I mean, I went to sleep at like 4 a.m. last night, something like that. Ooh. Yeah, I had really bad insomnia. Mm-hmm. I've been having a lot of it recently for some reason. I have no idea why. But I very much contemplated just like staying up all night last night because I was not falling asleep and then I fell asleep. Uh, and then I had to wake up at like nine. Oh, bless so, you. So I just took a nap. Uh, a very short nap, like 30 minutes. And I'm after this, I'm probably going to take another nap. Yeah, no, I'm probably going to nap after this as well. Hey folks, and welcome back to Return to the Telepodcast, a show about shitty horror movie sequels, prequels, reboots, uh, the whole nine yards. I'm Bryce Patterson, and as always, I'm joined by my dear friend and co-host, Kevin Serrano Echeverria. Hey, Kevin. Hello. I like I say dear friend, like I'm a dear and your friend. You know, I just feel like, you know, we're not just co-hosts. Like, I feel like people need to know that we're like actually friends and like hang out in real life. We do, but I meant like a deer, like an animal. Like I have no, I, I, I got that. I just, you know, <laughs> I do have antlers. okay. Yes, yeah, it's true. Kevin does have antlers. It's under all of my hair. Actually, Kevin has like a. Is it a Baphomet backpack? I do have a Baphomet backpack. It's where I keep all my makeup. It lives on like the door of his bathroom on the inside. So every time you like go into pee, you like close the door, and then there's just like. Baphomet staring at you in the mirror and it's pretty haunting I forgot that I have it there sometimes and then like when people come over they ask me about it and are concerned and I'm just like oh don't worry it's just my makeup bag yeah no no worries um I think it adds like a really nice kind of ambiance to the place and it's it's fun because we're always there to like watch horror movies uh it just yeah it just adds to the atmosphere thank you I try I try to make a nice horrific atmosphere So if this is your first time joining us, here's the deal. Basically, every episode of the show focuses on an iconic horror movie that has a dumpster fire of a sequel, a prequel, a remake, a reboot, um, the whole, the whatever, everything. Kevin and I talk about, you know, the original film, what made it great, what made it iconic, and then how the sequel kind of falls apart. And then we pitch each other ideas for different directions that the story could have gone. This week, we're talking about Robert Vina's 1920 classic, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And then we're actually going to talk about two films. So both the 2005 remake and the 1989 pseudo sequel, Dr. Caligari, which was directed by Stephen Syadian. So Kevin, I mean, what is, what's your history with these movies? I watched the original Dr. Caligari a while ago. I think I was like what 15 ish around that time I had a huge like phase in my life where I was super into like silent films I still kind of am and Dr. Caligari is still one of my favorite um, films just in general visually it is astounding and it is like everything that I kind of want out of like a set and uh, makeup and dress uh, so like when I watched it as like a uh, as like a teenager, it, it really stuck out to me as like a really good film. Yeah. Yeah, this was actually my first time seeing it, which kind of, I, I don't know, I'm surprised at myself on some level. Um, years ago when I was in college, I remember going to, um, there was an exhibit at LACMA, the uh, LA County Museum of Art, all about German expressionist film. And it was this incredible immersive exhibit where they built basically like little kind of hallways through this enormous room and it had a bunch of the concept art and stills from the films and then the the different movies like running as well so it had you know cabinet of dr caligari m uh i think nosferatu and Mm. um metropolis as well and i remember just being like it's probably the coolest museum exhibit i've ever been to i was just floored by it and then you know fast forward I don't know, like six or seven years. And I finally saw the movie for the first time, but it's really fucking cool. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've seen every single one of those movies you mentioned and I love, I love all of them. I'm just a really big fan of German expressionism very much as like a visual medium, especially, but like the storytelling of it 
as well is very interesting to me. Yeah. Well, you know, before we summarize the, the film, maybe we should just really briefly see if we can, I don't know, define, I guess, uh, German expressionism, because I, I don't know how common that term really is. Right. I mean, it's kind of a visual style as well as like a, I don't really know how else you would call it, but like a, a visual artistic style, cinematic style, sort of. It's very obvious when you see it. It looks kind of like uh, Tim Burton-esque. I would mm -hmm. say Tim Burton's uh, aesthetic draws a lot from German Expressionism uh, in that it's focused very much on non-straight lines, a lot of curves, a lot of sharp edges. Everything's extremely stylized. Um, likewise, like people themselves are also like stylized in the way that they dress and in the way that they act very theatrical, very artificial, kind of on purpose. Uh, and it kind of like arose, if I remember right, it arose from the expressionist uh, movement in general, which is very much trying to capture more of like the feel of something as opposed to like the actual representation of something, which in this film especially, which is a film that is about mental illness, uh, about murder and just darkness in general, the entire set and the entire set dressing and the entire just cast very much represents that sort of feeling. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that really covers it. I always think of it as just being like, yeah, there are no right angles in no. German expressionism. Everything has to be kind of obtuse. Pretty much, um, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, we, I, I don't want to get too much into the history only because I'm afraid of butchering it. <laughs> um, but I guess in brief, you know, it's it very much, you know, a product of the 20s. So yep. in the wake of World War One, it's happening at the same time as literary modernism in a lot of ways. And I think there's some similarities in that kind of like fractured understanding of the world and this yep. very dark, grim kind of loss of idealism. Yeah. Um, and so it lasts, I think, generally the time frame. I did a tiny bit of research on this, mm -hmm. but it's generally uh, Weimar Germany. So like in the interwar period. And with the rise of the Nazis in the 30s, um, I think a lot of the kind of directors associated with the movement ended up fleeing Germany. So Robert Vina, I believe, fled to the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, at, kind of as the Nazis came to power. And similarly, um, you know, the guy who did um, Metropolis. Fritz um, Long? Yeah, Fritz Long also, I think, eventually ended up leaving Germany as well. So, so it's a pretty short movement historically, yeah. but it's kind of associated with this period of uh, both, you know, I think the early 20s, there's yeah. huge inflation and the German economy is just a mess. And then there's a very brief, I think from like 1924 to 1929, give or take, um, a small boom for, you know, some segments of, mm -hmm. of German society. And it's this era that's significantly more liberal than Germany either before or after. Yeah, it's in, in the in the history of Germany, it's an interesting era and it's an interesting movement that really defines it. It's very much focused on like the exact opposite of Nazi sort of ideals. So while Nazis are all about like master race, German, Uber alles, and like building community, I feel like German expressionism and kind of the liberal mindset of Weimar Germany was more about multiculturalism. Um, more about suspicion of your neighbors as well as the government especially and about I guess pessimism in a lot of ways as well yeah yeah no it's it's a really fascinating movement and I'm already thinking like oh we should probably do M or Nosferatu oh God, yeah. at some point M's really really good it's not a horror movie it's more of a detective film but it's really good yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it's just like, I think there's something about German expressionist cinema that just is kind of haunting and creepy mm. regardless, you know? Um, so I, I mean, I, I guess I haven't seen M, so I can't really say, but I have a sense that we can probably make it fit our needs if we want. I'm sure. I'm sure we could. I wonder if there's a, a remake of M somewhere. And if there is, I don't like that it exists. Yeah, I think we can both preemptively hate it and, yeah. you know, go from there. I like that. Cool. 
Well, with that, Kevin, do you want to summarize the cabinet of Dr. Caligari? So the film starts with uh, two men sitting on a bench uh, while a young woman in a daze walks by them. Francis, who is the younger of the two men, uh, tells the other man that the woman who just walked by them is his fiancée, Jane. And the both of them have gone through a lot of suffering recently. After that, most of the film takes place uh, in kind of a flashback of Francis's tale of what happened to them. So we are in the German city of Holstenwald. Uh, Francis and his friend Alan uh, are visiting a fair where they go and see Dr. Caligari's fortune-telling somnambulist, Cesare. And a somnambulist is kind of like an old, I guess, for lack of a better term, like freak show or sideshow performer whose special thing is that they sleep a lot, I guess, and perform weird things while they're sleeping. Uh, But he has one, and it tells the future. Uh, So Alan, during the show, Alan asks Cesare how long he has left to live. And Cesare responds that he's going to be dead by dawn. And that night, Alan is stabbed to death. So Francis, Jane, Jane's father, Dr. Olson, and the police investigate the murder and apprehend a man who attempts to murder an old lady. Uh, But this is ultimately a red herring. And the man is put behind bars. That night after, after that, Cesare sneaks into Jane's room as she sleeps. And though he can't bring himself to stab her, he violently abducts her. Uh, He's pursued by Dr. Olson, the police, and various townsfolk, and he drops Jane and flees. Uh, Due to the trauma of being violently abducted, Jane is rendered delusional and catatonic. Francis and the others confront Dr. Caligari, who claims that Cesare has been in the cabinet the whole night. Body in the cabinet is revealed to be a decoy, however and Caligari escapes to an asylum, pursued by Francis. Francis is shocked and confused to find out that Caligari is the director of the asylum, uh, and then Francis rifles through Caligari's notes and finds out that he is obsessed with the experiments of an 18th century man, also named Caligari, who similarly uses a somnambulist named Cesare to commit murders. After being confronted by this, Caligari has a breakdown and is made a patient in his own asylum. So that's the end of the flashback. And we go back to the present, uh, where it's revealed that Francis is actually an an inmate of the asylum, as are Jane and Cesare. Dr. Caligari is the director of the asylum, whom Francis then attacks, believing his story that he just told to be true. After he's restrained, the doctor mentions that he is confident that Francis can be cured now that he understands his delusion. And then the film just ends there. Cool. Yeah, it's a it's a funny one. It like has kind of like the double twist of like, oh, yeah. Caligari is the director of the asylum. And then directly after it's like, oh, wait, no, they're all in the asylum. Yeah, pretty much. You, you kind of don't know how, who to trust. You don't really know what's real and what isn't. Uh, what's a delusion and what's like actually happening in the film and in a lot of ways it really doesn't matter well i mean right there i think that uh, you know as far as what makes caligari such a classic i think that's a good chunk of it right Mm -hmm. that it has this very surreal dreamlike atmosphere and being a silent film that i think maybe even comes through even more because there's no um there's no back and forth dialogue there's not a lot of setting you know it just kind Mm -hmm. of is um the motions being acted out with like a single line to kind of tell us what's going on. And so the whole thing has that very haunting, weird sort of feel to it. It's very much like, and I, I, and this is kind of true of like a lot of silent films, but especially this one, it's very much a pantomime almost where you're, you're, it's just like people are acting things out in front of you and you have to make a lot of connections. And I mean, occasionally like there's like lines of dialogue that are just like, shown on the screen and things like that but for the most part things just kind of happen and you make assumptions about that and then those assumptions are then later falsified yeah yeah no it it is very much like it feels like watching a stage play in a lot of ways um and I think that's as, as far as you know the really 
iconic things about the movie you know there are a couple of shots there's one particular one where um i'm not sure if it's cesare or i think in the remake they say cesare um, i don't i don't speak italian yeah i know me cesare. neither <laughs> either way um where he's carrying um jane over kind of the rooftops of this this german town and there's this really iconic still of that moment and i think that the film is just full of these images that are just stunning you know yeah. in and of themselves um and i i think that's you know it's the the visual style of the film it's it's just so unique and and uh i don't know if i want to say unmatched but you know there, there is no other film really post maybe like 1929 germany that really looks like that yeah yeah it's very much taking advantage of like the fact that there wasn't really such a thing as like special if well i mean there were special effects but not like any big special effects there weren't any green screens or anything like that everything had to be like a set that was built and i feel like that's very much to the films like a positive for the film because it makes it so like the set director whoever made the sets or whoever directed the sets i should say can be much more artistic with it they don't have to be like this is like realistic or this has to make any sense they can just be like go nuts do whatever just make windy points and spires just everywhere yeah when i think it means that the like the physicality of the world mirrors the 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 nature of the story and the internality of the characters so well you know that they're in this kind of weird carnival setup and then you know even weirder shit starts to happen and and the world itself mimics that 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 there's only one set which i think is uh jane's home Mm-hmm. that feels somewhat normal i think yeah. it might be the only place in the movie where there are any right angles in the way that buildings are constructed it's the only place in the movie where like there are rounded out edges instead of like sharp points which i feel like is kind of like the point of it because like cesare invades that space that very like virginal sort of like feminine space and he like takes her out and almost like almost like a sexual assault sort of and like traumatizes her yeah 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 well and it's interesting even Cesare he's very I mean he's extremely thin he's very Mm -hmm. like angular in the way that he he's built so even as he kind of like enters her bedroom he is visually like an invader as much as he is kind of like narratively one and I just really love how how the monster of the film is literally just some goth kid just some weird sleepy goth kid and that's that's it it's he's not like a supernatural well i mean he's kind of supernatural but he's not like a monster or anything he's just a dude that likes black eyeliner and sleeping a lot and stabbing people and like who can blame him really right (laughs) yeah yeah well it's interesting because even on some level, right, Cesare is being directed by Caligari. So, like, yeah. he's almost not even really the villain. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's just kind of, like, a tool of someone else. Right, yeah. Yeah, it, and it makes it, much like a lot of the film, it makes you question, like, who is the murderer? Like, is Cesare the murderer? Is Dr. Caligari the murderer? Just, like, you're kind of questioning, like, what is a building what isn't a building what is the truth what isn't the truth things like that you're just kind of constantly questioning kind of every preconceived notion that you have of like storytelling of how sets should look how characters should look things like that yeah well and i think this film has kind of a lot of twists and turns for like the era that it's from you know um it has at least like three Shyamalan twists just twist and twist and twist like i'm pretty sure i'm night Shyamalan watched this movie religiously as a child yeah no i think this probably had a huge impact on him <laughs> um yeah yeah and, and I, I think that like i mean i guess you know it's really limited how much i can speak about cinema of the 20s because that's just it's, silent film has always been like difficult for me mm-hmm. um but if i compare it to say like 
uh, you know, like the the kind of 40s American monster movies that I grew up on, like the original Wolfman and Frankenstein and Dracula and what have you. Those are really simple films narratively. You know, there's yeah. there's not a lot of unveiling, I think, whereas Caligari does, it, it kind of like fakes you out with the the, I guess, red herring murderer mm-hmm. and then the uh, like kind of double twist at the end there's there's kind of a, a consistent like revealing of new information in a way that I think today is really really common and I think that's how most thrillers are constructed kind of that it's like new information is the big kind of narrative pleasure that keeps us going but I think that was much rarer in in, in film historically it's very much I think as you said like very much like a stage play and like modern stage plays kind of like at the time were made like that they were like asking you to question your preconceived notions they were making twists after twist after twist in the narrative until nothing made sense anymore uh, and that's very much kind of the tradition that uh Edmund dr caligari is coming from it's it's funny i'm trying to think of like what else to say about <laughs> it but on some level i think maybe because it's a silent film right it's like i, I can't really say much about the script right um, barely a script at all <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is like the incredible visual design. It's not just like the the sets and the locations, even the text they use for the, uh, I guess, the the dialogue cards is really beautiful and really creatively done. You know, it um, it's just like a deeply stylish film that has a lot of fun twists and turns. And, you know, the, the scene where Cesare actually abducts Jane is still kind of chilling like the the way that he he moves as a character is very haunting and kind of inhuman mm-hmm. it's but very, it's hard for me to say more than that yeah. it's very theatrical the way that like every character moves like their expressions are really exaggerated both like in their movements and in their like facial expressions which like for a film that is meant to be like very very stylized just works super super well yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it kind of feels like on some level, there's a, a, a real simplicity to the film that it's, it's a really limited cast of characters. It's a really limited set of locations. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess we just keep coming back to this stage play idea. Right. Um, but it means that like we're just everything can focus in on the same set of, of kind of ideas, you know, or the same kind of experience. You know, I've, I've heard it said that the film is kind of well I mean and you you said this right that mm-hmm. that it's playing with ideas of like authority and who we trust and um the kind of the structures of authority so Caligari being either the director of the asylum or a patient in the asylum mm-hmm. or someone else entirely um and in, in my research before recording the actually the 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 framing story, at least the second part of it, was, I think, significantly different in an earlier draft. And a lot of uh, critics are mixed on, does Caligari actually being just a good doctor and the whole story being the kind of hallucinations of Francis, does that undercut the more kind of radical political commentary of the story? that it turns out, you know, the uh, the person running the asylum is actually insane themselves. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what to do with that. I mean, I don't think so. Like, I, I, I very much see, like, Francis's delusion, which if it even is a delusion, like, it's still not 1000% clear, like, if everything that Francis has said is completely fictional. Uh, elements of it obviously are. But I even then, like, it's still like kind of the perception of like a person in a mental asylum, like the perception that they have of the people treating them. So obviously like Francis is suspicious of everyone around him for fairly a good reason. Like when he acts out, he's restrained and drugged and presumably is going to be treated in a, in kind of a way that's like questionable Like, the way that the film just ends with, like, Dr. Caligari being like, I know what to do now, and it just cuts out, it kind of makes it so, like, the audience is suspicious of what he's going to be doing to Francis. Yeah, well, maybe maybe that's kind of, 
kind of the beauty of the film on some level is that it like it ports, puts forward a lot of questions, but it really doesn't it doesn't really try to give you a lot of answers and it, and it, it does sort of leave itself like there's that twist and we think we know what's going on, but it's still very kind of, it's still a very doomy ending, right? You know, even right. if he is getting the treatment he needs and maybe there's a degree too that like being a modern audience, seeing uh, the main character in a mental institution in the twenties, we're like, Oh, that's, that's probably not great regardless. Right. Yeah, no, uh, being in a mental institution in 1920s Germany is not where you want to be. Yeah, when it's, it's interesting too, right, that, um, and maybe we'll come back to this when we're pitching, mm-hmm. but I think it's so fascinating that, you know, the Jane character is just another patient in the institution. And so Francis asks her, like, will you, finally, will you marry me? Mm-hmm. And she it says, you know, no, I'm a queen, you know, we can't follow our hearts. And so she right. has her own kind of delusion but then his idea of them ever having a romantic relationship is itself a delusion right and that factors somewhat into my pitch whenever we get there i mean like also even just the fact that like her delusion is that she is like a person with like an extreme amount of power and authority like she is a person that is running this whole place i feel like is already just a commentary on like what authority even means in a space where like almost everyone there has like completely lost touch with reality. Yeah. 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 There's, there, there's a, an interesting kind of like play with authority at, at mm-hmm. kind of the end of the film, especially. Yeah. yeah and it makes sense. Uh, even the place and the era, like this is right after or fairly, fairly soon after like the German monarchy fell and like, it's b- right before like, nazism is instilled into the government so like the german german authority german government is already on very very shaky ground with everyone and it's kind of obvious uh in the film where like everything's just like uncertain the people that are supposed to be like in power like the police dr caligari are either inept or bad people in themselves or just extremely suspicious throughout so we're never given like anyone that any of the characters can turn to when they need help. Yeah, I think that's a really apt summary of the film. I think so. Cool. Well, okay, so like with that in mind, the 2005 remake. Yes. It fucking sucks. It's yes. so bad. <laughs> So to summarize the plot, it's the same. It's literally shot for shot, nearly the same. There is no difference. It is the exact same movie, uh, just with uh, a shitty like black and white Photoshop. Not even Photoshop because Photoshop wasn't invented yet. Like shitty black and white like Windows Vista filter, and like instead of the good like actually made backgrounds and scenery and set dressing, all of it's just digital like shitty fuzzy digital background on a very obvious green screen yeah so essentially it looks like what they did was just take you know shots from the set dressing of the original film Mm -hmm. and green screen modern actors onto it and everyone looks like they should have been in like my chemical romance circa 2005 yeah um we were joking about we kept expecting someone to like burst in chiming you know uh shut the goddamn door uh We'll I cut chimed that. In. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, everyone, like every character in the film looks like they're straight out of the Black Parade. It has this yeah. weird kind of like early 2000s, like hot topic emo sort of look to it. But then with the really janky green screen onto these original shots and the original sets, and then superimposed on top of that is this garbage script that like, it, it has this weird kind of artlessness to it. I would say that it doesn't, it, 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 what I thought when we were watching is it felt almost like the, the actors were just um, ad-libbing based on the yeah. plot of the original film. Like there's no subtext to anything that's said. There are no great lines. It's just kind of people talking their way through a plot that did not really need dialogue. No, I mean, the plot of the movie was made so much dialogue wasn't necessary. So, like, when you're trying to add dialogue, all that happens is just the characters are explaining 
what they're doing or what is happening and like there's obviously like more dialogue than there needs to be because the film the original film didn't have a lot so the actors are just like making shit up and being like i'm doing this now and this is happening and this is how i'm feeling and i'm just like i okay we didn't need to know that yeah well it's interesting because it means that like each scene is stretched out kind of torturously long yeah and it ends up devolving from so they take you know the original um you know uh stills from the original film green screen modern modern actors onto those but then to facilitate the dialogue they also move into you know a more standard like shot reverse shot approach to cinematography and so every individual scene just feels really long in this way where it's kind of it feels like everything leading up to the important moment and everything after the important moment has been kind of stretched to accommodate the dialogue And, you know, part of that is probably that we watched these two films literally back to back. So so seeing like shot for shot the same scene with the the new dialogue kind of inserted, it just feels so unnecessary yeah. the entire way through. I mean, I wouldn't say it's shot for shot because there are considerably worse shots in, <laughs> yeah. in the remake. Uh it, it it's it's like if 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 you had the original like Dr. Caligari. Uh, with worse set dressing or at least worse quality of whatever actors and sets and everything else but you took kind of like a more modern approach to cinematography which is bad in like the context of this film like the the whole purpose of like having a, a German expressionist sort of like background setting is for you to see it like all the time so if you have a shot reverse shot like constantly whenever people are talking you're not seeing the background and it's like why do you even have this like majorly stylized background when like half the time i'm not even seeing it right well and if you're going to replicate a film that's known for these astounding visuals why would you just green screen modern actors onto it yeah you know when i think it also has the problem it's the same problem actually that uh i think holds true in the star wars prequels that like i think you get when you overuse green screen that you have these scenes that are incredibly static where it's just you have the wide shot that's just like look here's uh you know a frame from the original film and then you have the shot reverse shot of two people just standing looking at each other and talking and so it feels very flat like there's very little motion because you know the actors are just in front of a green screen like what are they supposed to do Mm -hmm. so we don't get any of the improvements that i think you could do you know remaking the film 85 years later of having them actually move more within the sets you know or 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 having more physicality to the way the actors are interacting there's none of that because it's just done on a green screen yeah yeah there is barely any physicality The, the actors themselves hardly at all like interact with the set and like in the original one they don't interact well i would say that they don't interact with the set a whole ton besides cesare who does that a lot Mm -hmm. but like when they do it's like i'm just remembering the um the scene when in the original film when uh francis and the various workers in the asylum are in dr caligari's office and they're like pointing to and interacting with a skeleton there. And like, you can kind of tell that it's like implied that this was the original Cesare, that this is like the dead body of this person. Just by the fact that like before that, we just had like that whole reveal scene. And after that, they're all like acting surprised and touching the skeleton and everything else. And in the remake, you don't get that at all. But it's just like this whole narrative element's just gone because they can't interact with the set. Yeah, and even the skeleton itself, it's sort of like in the corner of the frame. And it's, at least in the version of the film that we watched, it looks horribly compressed. You know, like the image looks like a low-grade JPEG from 2005. It's it's a fucking Windows Vista movie. It's astounding. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's literally what it is. It's, it's, yeah, bad. Real bad. Do not recommend. It might be the most unnecessary film I've ever seen in my life. It um, is. It is very much that. It's very disappointing. <laughs> well, it, it, it's an interesting question, you know, because I, I think on some level, right, I'm not alone in struggling with silent film. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's just difficult for me to watch through a film 
without dialogue to kind of latch onto. Mm-hmm. And so I I think there's space to try and, you know, tell this story for a for a modern audience and to to play with, you know, the visual template that this film gave us in exciting new ways. Yeah. But the 2005 remake is not it. It is just like it feels like a rehash and I have yeah. a a spurious utterly unresearched thought that maybe it was only made to like hold on to the rights a little bit longer that makes a lot of sense actually but who knows you know i mean i guess <laughs> maybe i would know if i'd done more research before coming into recording i mean like i i feel like it has a really bad case of like weezer covering africa oh in that like they're not doing anything with it it's just if you're not familiar weezer covered africa by toto and the cover's bad not because like it's like it sounds bad it's bad because it's literally africa by toto played by weezer without anything new except for the fact that rivers cuomo was singing instead of the lead singer of toto yeah you know it's the same thing because like because like the film itself is well it is bad but like the story itself isn't bad but that's only because the original story was really really good and they're following it like super super religiously and not really deviating from it very much yeah it's it's a baffling film the like only additions that i can think of are um at some point jane has a brother who just suddenly like pops up partway through the movie and who ends up i think stabbing uh chizari to death in the woods somewhere he just fucking murders him just kills him Um, why not and then I, I I don't remember. Did the original movie have the like wobbly knife that we saw? Oh no, it didn't. The original movie just had a straight up knife. The the newer one had like a weird wobbly dagger thingy. Yeah, like it looks like serrated, but like rather than being you know those like harsh kind of like uh, little triangles that you would get on like a bread knife or something, it's just like this like it looks like a sine wave kind of. Yeah, it's the kind of knife that like you would see in like a satanic sort of like sacrifice sort of like black mass when someone's just like cutting their palm to like get out some blood for this weird dark ritual it's very much that and i mean those are like the only like the only two things that they've really added besides more like a bunch of meaningless dialogue yes right i I think so like very little else. I mean, like they go, they they added also. Um, I think Francis's home is like a setting for like a hot second. Uh, I, I should say like more Francis's home is more of a setting, because in the beginning it's like a thing for like a few minutes in the original film, but like they the, the characters Alan and Francis interact a lot more in his home. But that's really it. It's really just there to add more dialogue. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's just the most unnecessary film I've ever seen. Hmm. Don't see it, Don't. listeners. Real bad. It won two awards. Did I tell you that? It won an award for, uh, I think it was uh, a fairly small film festival, so I don't feel too bad. But like it, run, it won an award for best uh, cinematography and best like uh, special effects, which is like the two worst things in the film. Yeah. Like, what was it up against? A potato? Right, <laughs> right. Oh, I feel like we do have to talk about, like, in this version, Jane goes from being kind of, like, I don't know, sort of like a virginal kind of angelic character to being, like, the big titty goth girlfriend. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's literally that. She's the so, big titty goth GF that two dudes are, like, fighting over. Yeah. A lot of, lot of cleavage in this version. Yeah. Yeah, whole lot of it, whole lot of it. Much more kind of uh, Elvira, Mistress of the Night kind of look to her. She looks very much like uh, a person that works at Hot Topic on prom night. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, and interestingly, I mean, you you mentioned um, Francis and Alan kind of fighting over her, but even you know they're very kind of cordially like, yeah, it's just like a you know a competition between friends, and like early right. on in the movie, they're like we'll still be friends regardless of what happens, right? And like, right. what a missed opportunity for like any amount of conflict um, 
you know, or any kind of deepening of the relationships mm-hmm. in the film. It's just kind of them having like a friendly bro down of like, yeah, whoever the hot topic lady decides to go out with, like, we're cool <laughs> with that. Yeah. And, and like that element's in the original film too, but because like there is more dialogue, a lot more dialogue in the remake, it kind of just feels like that's a bigger element. The director and the writer are just like stretching that whole scene out. Right, right. When it's, it feels to me like a conflict that would have been maybe hard to play with in the context of everything else they were trying to do in, in, in the original. Mm-hmm. But now that they have this chance to remake it, I think they, they do nothing to deepen the film. They yeah. only kind of replicate it poorly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like they have so many opportunities to do something different and interesting, uh, but they instead just make everything as similar to the original film as possible and just stretch out scenes unnecessarily. Yeah. So on that note, let's jump to the 1989 film, Dr. Caligari, directed by Steven Zaidian. We're not even going to try and summarize it, right? Like, it's easy. how? It, it has a very loose plot. First of all, I, I want to start out by saying that I love this film and it's amazing and I stan it and I, I need a copy of it, right? It is so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we're, we're planning, Kevin, when your birthday comes around, uh, I think a few of us, well, no, I, I won't give anything away. Um, yeah, this is a Dr. Caligari 1989 stan account now. Because, yes. oh my God. <laughs> it's so good. It's so uh, it's so witty and funny and avant-garde. And like, for me at least, like there were moments of it that were just like weirdly touching. And it's like, what? <laughs> yeah. So on Wikipedia, it's described as an avant-garde horror erotic film. And like, yeah, it's it's extremely abstract. It all takes place in this weird kind of like black nether realm set. Mm-hmm. It's um we so the director has some amount of background in porn or at least like erotic cinema, mm-hmm. and that really comes through, but oh, yeah. also a lot of body horror. Um I was trying to think of how to describe it, and I would say it's sort of like it has the kind of the diseased sort of body horror of David Cronenberg with some kind of David Lynch weirdness. Like the dialogue is often like very snappy and Mm -hmm. stylized in a way that makes me think of some elements of maybe like Twin Peaks. Yeah. But then the actual structure of the film feels kind of like cut up in the same way as like Naked Lunch um, or something like uh, Blood and Guts by Kathy Acker is maybe like a novel I would potentially compare it to that it's just like wild and crazy and like extremely sexual in ways yeah. that are often kind of disturbing. Yeah, I, I I think like the first time I saw it, it gave me really, really strong like De Palma vibes mm. just in the way that like everything's so off the wall and like things are just happening all at once. The characters aren't acting like normal human beings. They're just like weirdly hyped up, like stylized sort of representations of roles or archetypes and things like that instead of actual people. And it's like, it, it, it's, it's important to note that the director of this film worked with De Palma and worked with, um, I think he worked with David Lynch as well. Might be wrong about that. But he, he worked very much with a lot of like big name, like high art, quote unquote, directors. And it very much shows in this film. Yeah, it's it's such a funny like art house, but done in the like sleaziest kind of grindhouse way you can sort of. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just going to read out a few of my favorite quotes <laughs> that I noted down while we were watching. Uh, there's a line. I'm not a hysteric. I'm a CPA. (laughs) There's a character who was Miss Libido 1985. And there was a lot of competition that year. Of course. (laughs) There's a whole thing like, bring us all your old glands. Give us your endocrine system. 
I love that. One look at those earlobes, and I knew I had to nibble. It's oh my god! And then pathological daddy lust was a line, and like I oh, think yeah. that needs to be our band name. Yes, yes, it does. Please. Yeah, it is. It's bonkers, and I think you know. I mean, I mean, on some level, they basically have like the it, it follows. I guess the granddaughter of the Dr. Caligari from the 1920s film. Who is like a German? Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like BDSM mistress? Um, like a dominatrix? Yes, yes. So Dr. Caligari is like a German dominatrix running this asylum place that deals with people with like extreme forms of I don't know. I, I guess like extreme libidos. Uh, there's this whole thing about like. Uh, one of the main characters has like a disease of the libido and so her yeah. husband checks her in because he's just like I just can't handle all of her orgasms I guess right. yeah yeah and her treatment for them is like just implanting their like brain fluids into each other I think it was like so there's another character who is a cannibal uh, and he gets his brain fluids implanted into the wife character and the wife character gets her fluids implanted into him and I think the whole purpose of it is to like be like opposites attract, sort of level them out. What ends up happening is that she turns cannibalistic and the cannibal turns uh, into this sort of tragic trans allegory hypersexual character. Yeah, it's fucking bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's... I think it's a really interesting take on the source material because it feels like what they essentially did was picked like a handful of things that felt important from the first film. Mm -hmm. And we're like, okay, so that had a really important, uh, really specific, I guess, visual style Mm -hmm. that was reflective of kind of like the technology at the time. And they very much replicate that, but using like the technology and styles of the 80s. So it feels very similar to Cronenberg's Videodrome. There's a whole thing with like a TV that talks to one of the characters. And I kept expecting her to like put her head into the TV. (laughs) Um, So it kind of takes that, it takes the um, kind of uh, insane asylum element and then just sort of goes buck wild from there. Yeah, it's kind of like Rocky Horror. It reminds me a lot of Rocky Horror. Yeah. Or just like the psychosexual elements are like so prevalent. There's so much sex and so much eroticism. And it's all very campy. Like they're everyone's just having like a lot of fun with it. I bet like filming this movie was just like a blast for everyone involved. But it's 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 a really fun, really horny film that I highly recommend you watch. It might be the horniest film I've ever seen. It's yeah. definitely up there. It's definitely, definitely up there. And I feel like in terms of like um, continuation of Dr. Caligari, the original Dr. Caligari, it does a much more successful job than the uh, 2004 remake. It gets to a lot of the original themes of the film, which is like, what is real? What kind of isn't real? It gets into that a lot. Um, And it just like ups the ante to like an extreme amount it like goes up to 11 on like those elements and on on the stylistic elements it replaces like the german expressionism of the film with like a hyper stylized like sort of memphis style sort of 80s angular colorful neon-y sort of uh aesthetic to it yeah i mean it's it's a film with some chutzpah i would say like it just like it has the balls to be the movie it wants to be. And it does that really well. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things that I think it's kind of like, if it sounds interesting, it'll probably work for you. Mm. And if it doesn't, then it won't. I still recommend like, you watch it though, because it'll fuck you up. Yeah, it's, it's an experience. <laughs> it's the kind of movie that you're like, you don't want your like parents to walk in on you. You don't want anyone to walk in on you watching Dr. Caligari because yeah. it is just like, there's a whole scene where a character is like making out with like a giant tongue the size of her torso. And it's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of pulsating, a lot of fluid and goop. And 
It is a lot. It is like right on the line of like pornography, art house, like camp. It, it's a lot of things happening at once. And I love it for that. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting, I guess, because I think we have, you know, we have these two films. We have the, the 2005 remake and then the 1989, I guess, like pseudo sequel. I don't know. It's hard to even call it a sequel um, on some it, level. It's a sequel in spirit. Yeah. And, and, and each of them, I think they, they, I mean, they show, I think maybe like two of the most common paths that, that people take when they're uh, continuing on these films, which is either kind of like, just like a complete retread of the original or something so off the wall that like, if you like the original, there is no guarantee you'll like the sequel and vice versa. I mean, like while the original film, I feel like to a modern audience is very reserved. Uh, even though I feel like to like a 1920s German audience that it, it was probably fairly extreme. Um, but to a modern audience, the 1989 Dr. Caligari is, is very, very out there. It's very, very extreme. It's very much pushing as many boundaries as it can. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is still very extreme by like our standards over 30 years later. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't even know what else to say about it. <laughs> it is just it's so nuts there's a whole yeah like the cannibalism element there's a whole thing about like a guy who enjoys electroshock therapy so he's put pieces of metal up his ass so that it's a more intense like tingle um i mean like whatever genre like rocky horror or like little shop of horrors or like beetlejuice whatever that genre is it's very much this dr caligari is very much in that if it was ramped up like if it was like given an NC-17 rating and all of those elements were just like ramped up to such an extreme amount that they're just like almost caricatures. Yeah, that, I, that's about it. It's <laughs> honestly, it's the closest I've ever seen, which I, I should say I have not seen David Cronenberg's film version of Naked Lunch. And I've been mm-hmm. meaning to, but it's really hard to find these days. But it's the closest I've seen to somebody capturing like the experience of reading like one of Burroughs more experimental novels. It's the closest I've gotten to seeing that on screen because it is so wild and so surreal, but I think maintains a lot of the kind of the the humor and the just insanity of that in in a visual form. It's mm-hmm. it's fascinating. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely recommend it. And I'm sad that it's not more popular it is it's it's very much a cult film and it feels like it but i also kind of wish that it was a more popular film as well well cool well then it's uh it's pitch o'clock baby yes what um what were your thoughts? And I guess really either on remaking or sequelizing, you know, I, I kind of feel like because we've done both a remake and a sort of sequel, we can go either way with our pitches. I feel like the, the uh, original film doesn't really need either. But like if I had to do something to it, I would probably do a remake. And if I were to do a remake, it would be something something kind of in terms of like, what the 1989 Dr. Caligari did, but probably to a less extreme extent. Like I'm, I'm imagining this more as like a less of an art house film and more of just like a film that like people would, I was almost going to say watch to enjoy, (laughs) (laughs) even though I enjoy the 1989 one a lot, more of a film that like, it's more traditional, I, I should say. Because if, if I wanted to make like Dr. Caligari an art house film, it already exists. So I don't need to do that. But if I wanted to make uh, like a remake of Dr. Caligari, I would take a lot of inspiration from the 89 film in, the, in, in terms of like updating it for modern audience. So I would keep it very stylized. Um, I would keep it relevant to like things that are happening nowadays. Um, keep it relevant to the conversation that we have around mental illness, but 
very much like still in line with the plot of the original film, just updated both visually uh, and kind of like on a story element, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Maybe I'd make it like, uh, instead of like, I don't know, German expressionist, maybe like vapor wavy or like cyberpunk almost. I feel like that'd be cool. Yeah, I've been trying to think of like, in the same way that like the the 1989 film has like an extremely 80s aesthetic, you know, what like that equivalent would be today. And it's really hard to place, you know? Yeah, I mean, I feel like a 2020s aesthetic isn't like as extreme as like either an aesthetic from like the 20s or the 80s. Like we don't really have an aesthetic that's like very much in your face besides maybe like hyper pop, but that's like it's hard yeah. to make it's hard to make a hyper pop set. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like the the kind of vaporwave idea. I think that's really, really interesting. Yeah. I think it would be cool to like do kind of like a cyberpunkish vaporwave digital sort of uh cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Or maybe like instead of Cesare being like a somnambulant or whatever, maybe he's like a computer virus or like a dormant computer virus or something like that. And everyone's like an android. And I don't know, maybe like Dr. Caligari is just like exhibiting this computer program that can like tell your future. And then it like kills you by like infecting you, infecting your like android parts. And then you die. I don't know, something like that. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I also kind of wondered about like what a sci-fi version of the story would look like. You know, I, I kind of imagined the kind of the visual aesthetic of either, you know, the new Dune or mm. Blade Runner 2049, which I guess are both what Denis Villeneuve. Yeah. Um, but that kind of huge scale that he does in his films where I think something becomes large enough that it almost becomes abstract in a way could be really interesting for a story like this yeah yeah I definitely think so in terms of like updating kind of the um mental illness psychological elements of the film I don't know I'm not exactly sure what I would do just because like as much as I love the original film it is kind of ableist in the how it portrays people with mental illnesses I guess like I don't know maybe I'd make them make the characters who are mentally ill less caricatures and more like tragic heroes if that makes any sense which like, I mean like Francis kind of is one but I would kind of emphasize that even more maybe maybe he's just a person with schizophrenia or like a person who like if he is an android he's malfunctioning or something and like no one's helping him or something like that he's being uh treated like shit by what the equivalent of psychiatrist would be yeah no I, I think that's really interesting yeah it, it is it's a funny thing of like a story about mental illness that you know I mean I imagine honestly that this was probably like maybe if not progressive by the standards of its time just very standard um yeah. uh by its time so yeah it's an interesting thing of like how do you how do you update that and what does right. it actually look like I really don't know I mean it is it, I guess it was progressive in that it had uh, all of the main or at least the protagonist was a person with like pretty bad delusions was like pretty seriously mentally ill so i guess that's progressive in some sense uh but nowadays that's not really anything special and is kind of uh, actually a little bit ableist <laughs> in the way that he ends up uh at the end of the film it's kind of like a almost a how joker gets to be joker if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's a really, I mean, I think it's an interesting question as storytellers that like there's this whole history of like how madness has been used in in fiction to tell stories, right? And I think we're, uh, you know, have like a much different perspective on like what that even means. And I think most people would just never use the term madness anymore, right? To describe someone right. with mental, mental illness. Right. Um, and so then the question of like, yeah, how do you work with a story where that's really fundamental? I, I Yeah, I have no idea. It's hard. It's really hard. Um, yeah, but but because it is a film that, like, puts mental illness very much 
front and center. It needs to be a film that kind of depicts that in a very stylized way. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I took a pretty different approach. Um, I think it would be really interesting to tell the story, actually setting it again in Weimar era Germany, I think would be really, really interesting because the Weimar Republic is such a specific, unique kind of point in history mm -hmm. um, and have the story instead focus on Jane. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we were talking about the, uh, the other night when we were watching these films, we were joking about how like love triangles are, they only really work if everyone is straight, kind of. Yes. Um, and so there's, yeah, I mean, you could go one direction where it's like, Francis loves Alan, Alan loves Jane, Jane loves Francis, Francis dies or something. Actually, I think Alan's the one who dies in the film. Yeah, Alan dies. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, I, yeah, I was thinking about how interesting it would be if like, if we follow Jane and she's a queer woman living in Weimar era Germany, so then she's being pursued by these two men, Francis and Alan, who, you know, they're not really um, framed as being like these terrible possessive men in the film, but I think that would be really interesting in the ways that they compete and sort of fight over and around her, I think could be really interesting. And then, you know, Cesare, when he actually kidnaps her, or abducts her, kind of mirroring the the ways that these men all around her are kind of trying to control and, and shape her life i think mm -hmm. could be a really interesting i guess thematic connection to make i like that i like very much that it's a film that centers around sort of the queer experience uh, in weimar germany there's a, a a really old well i think it's really old uh german film that is very much about that i don't remember what it's called i just know that it exists that's yeah. pretty much about the queer culture in Weimar Germany at the time. Um, but it is something that like I feel does need to be like talked about and mentioned a lot more because Weimar Germany, uh, in comparison to like both Germany under like Kaiser Wilhelm and especially Germany under the Nazis, it is a very it, it's a very like super socially liberal place that like only lasted for like a, a decade or so. So like I feel like having that setting, having that aesthetic, and kind of like playing with it, I think is a good idea. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I mean, I think that there's a degree that like watching this film in 2022, you know, over a hundred years after it came out, it's impossible not to have that context of knowing, right, this is right after World War One. This is mm. pretty soon uh before pretty close to World War Two. And so like by setting the film in Germany in the twenties, I think you could end up having like this really interesting, um, yeah, the sense that like nothing here is going to last. Like I right. think the tragedy of the film might come out more clearly, and that could be a really interesting yeah. direction to or, or, or uh, element to explore. Right. Yeah, I feel like it would be interesting to really have like the whole film kind of be. Wait, have you seen Cabaret? Like the Liza Minnelli movie? No, I haven't. It's amazing. Watch it. But it, it's very much kind of like that in that cabaret is takes place like right before the rise of Nazism in Germany as well. And like the whole movie is kind of like, even though it's super happy on the outside, it has this like atmosphere of like doom and gloom because everyone knows that things are going to shit. And everyone knows that like around them, people are getting racist and nationalist and awful. And I think that would be a good idea to like put in like Dr. Caligari. Because like, you couldn't put in the original one, obviously. Like, no one <laughs> knew that that was going to happen. But, like, uh, having it set in that way and connecting it kind of to, like, the present moment, like, the West in 2020, uh, where we're kind of going through that right now, I think is uh, it's a very apt comparison. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it, it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, from from my understanding, yeah, all around the Weimar Republic was you know, significantly more liberal than what came before or after it. But right, even, you know, a change in governments doesn't mean that we lose the patriarchy, right? Or it doesn't right. mean that um, all of these, you know, deeply held societal ills just go away. And so I think that it could be a really interesting thing to explore of kind of like a rising optimism and a shift towards these more liberal values. And then like the ways that people do or do not actually shift with that would be really fascinating yeah yeah i think that'd be cool i think it'd be interesting to kind of like 
I don't know, we are just making that connection between like Weimar Germany and nowadays, which I think again is an app connection. Also, like 100 years ago was Weimar Germany, weirdly enough. 100 year cycles, it all comes back. But um, making that connection between like a super liberal environment and government and the fact that things like um, sexism and homophobia, racism, et cetera, still exist. Uh, I think is I think is also something to bring up. Yeah, it's kind of like maybe like Weimar Germany is like the Obama years, yeah. and then we have like oh yeah, like we thought Bush was bad. Just wait till you see Trump. Uh, we thought Trump was bad. Wait until you see Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine the other night about like you know who will be the actually competent authoritarian who who follows after Trump and like what that'll look like. Mm-hmm. which is very much a conversation for another time but like that's a horror movie in and of itself i think yeah yeah no i feel like uh every presidential election is kind of a horror movie in, in a lot of ways yeah yeah that that feels like kind of a downbeat ending to this episode <laughs> uh <laughs> i mean dr caligari is kind of a downbeat movie so it kind of fits yeah no yeah um well, cool. Well, Kevin, do you have any last thoughts on anything? Watch Dr. Caligari. It's really good. Uh, especially for a film that's like a little over 100 years old, I think. I think it was made in like 1920, I think. Something yeah. Like that, right? Yeah, 1920. Yeah, 102 years old, and it's still in a lot of ways pretty relevant. And in a lot of ways, still very visually appealing. Amen to that. Return to the Telepodcast is a production of Silent Machine Studios, featuring music by My Silent Machine. If you enjoyed this episode, like, subscribe, and do whatever else you usually do with podcasts, I don't know. Thank you for listening.